Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we are looking at the Ten Commandments, words to live by. It's an interesting commandment this week. It's commandment number six. It's a very short commandment. We won't have to spend too much time on it. It says right here, if I can read it for you, now hold on, don't murder. Did you all get that? Don't murder. That's basically what it says in Hebrew if you transliterated the two Hebrew words of this commandment, lo reshah, do not murder. Sometimes we translate it as thou shall not kill, as it says in the King James. Sometimes we bring that word of murder into it. But in whatever the case is, uh, basically that's it. Moses didn't spend a lot of time when he wrote this uh, to elaborate upon what he means by that. I think he just makes the assumption that we know. Does anybody in here not understand what it means not to murder? Good. Okay, Will, we're done for the day. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I, that's, you know, when I started to sit down and to prepare this, I said, wow, a two-word commandment, and uh, we're going to see this kind of repeated. Uh, you, know, you shall not kill and so forth. Uh, they're very short. You shall not murder. Now, people make a lot out of this term. What does it mean exactly? Because obviously there has got to be some nuances to this idea of killing. Uh, in fact, in the Hebrew, there are some nine different words that are used to uh, express that idea of causing someone's life to be over. It's a grisly study. I didn't spend a whole lot of time with it, but just say this, that the word that Moses chooses to use here in this commandment uh, is sometimes understood as meaning specifically murder, to take a life unjustly. Um, perhaps a more accurate rendering would be just to kill. Uh, it denotes premeditation, possibly deliberateness. Um, it doesn't apply usually to killing of animals when we see that said and commanded in Genesis 9.3, or defending one's home in Exodus 22.2. It's not used for accidental killings, as in Deuteronomy 19.5, or the execution of murderers by the state. Um, involvement with certain types of war. I mean, there's all kinds of issues you can get into on this. Is capital punishment permissible? Should we be pacifists as believers? But what I can say is this, is that the word by itself I don't think I would take that too far as far as saying this is what this word means. Um, the Hebrew says this, and so therefore we know that it's really specifically limiting itself just to the concept of murder. However, I think that you're going to have to do a better study on this and use more of a contextual argument to get to that place rather than using the vocabulary word. Because we do see this same word uh, Rashak used in different places throughout Scripture, and it's not always clear-cut that it's referring to someone taking someone's life to harm them. So you have to understand what Moses is trying to say here. So again, let's paint the picture as we do every week with these commandments, is the children of Israel are getting ready, the second generation of Israelites, to go into the land of Canaan and to take possession of it as their inheritance from the Lord, and God is giving them their law, their moral code, before they do that. This is something that they are supposed to be prepping in their hearts, and even though it may have been a given, the people didn't really need to be told this, 
God being thorough as he is, is saying, hey, listen up. You shall not kill, right? Now, we've got to look at the rest of the Old Testament. We've already seen this happen in numerous places where sometimes killing is the action of one man against another, and sometimes it is God's direct commandment to his people to go and kill. So how do you balance these uh, commandments with the reality of the life these people were living? In fact, uh, the entire you know, campaign to go take the land in Canaan was going to involve a lot of killing, if I can be so grisly, uh, down to the man, woman, and child. When Joshua sends his troops through the north and then through the south, uh, in fact, he is criticized by the prophets because he did not always fulfill God's commandment to kill, to utterly kill uh, the way that God intended. So how can this be one of our commandments? You shall not kill. Obviously, there is some other intent here. And Moses seems to be saying, you understand this. You know this. You, you don't have to have this explained. So my guess is, is that as a people, they had already felt fairly well instructed on this. And if I turn back to Genesis, the first book of Scripture, chapter 9, we see an injunction against killing in verse 6. Uh, the scenario is the ark has come to rest after the flood. Everybody has gotten off, and it's just Noah, his sons, their wives, um, and they are getting ready to repopulate the world. And God is deciding to say to Noah, all right, we're going to have a covenant, a promise between you and, and me. I'll be your God, you be my people, and here are some things I want you to keep in mind. Here are my pre-commandments, in a sense. So even though these were not part of the Ten Commandments, they functioned much the same. So in verse 6, we see that God says to him, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God, and this is the rationale for this argument, for God made man in his own image. Noah, I don't want there to be bloodshed. I don't want you to kill anyone. If you remember, God justifies the flood in the first place back in chapter 6 because of the violence that men were perpetrating upon each other. There's too much violence. They're, they're killing each other. I, I despise the movie Noah that came out a few years ago uh, because of its biblical inaccuracies, but I thought the one thing they did really well in there was you got this sense of violence. The people seemed not to have any limitations to expressing themselves, and that include hurting one another. So stop the violence. And God is saying to Noah, as you begin this new life in this new world, I want you to exclude killing one another by uh, any man who sheds the blood of another man his own blood will be shed and the rationale is because we are created to be in the image of God so when we jump ahead to Moses giving the children of Israel the second time the ten commandments and we see this sixth commandment lo rashak do not kill it seems to be that he thinks that they understand 
the gist of this commandment. He doesn't do a lot of explanation. And just in case you think I'm stressing this, just remember as we've gone through these previous commandments, there's almost always been a little pericope in which he explains what he means. And he gives a little either uh, explanation of the judgment or uh, kind of an incentive for them to do what is right. But at this point, he seems to think they have a handle on this. He doesn't try to explain all the various nuances. So maybe for our purposes this morning, we don't have to do that. We can stick strictly to what Scripture is saying without any kind of uh, guesswork as to what it's about. What we do know is that the Israeli commandments, the law that God gave them, is somewhat different than the other peoples of the ancient Near East. Uh, Take, for example, the Babylonian uh, law had the same commandment, you shall not kill, but theirs was limited to people of stature. You shall not kill a royal. You shall not kill a rich man. You shall not kill someone who's at a better status in life than you. The punishments were severe if you took that upon yourself. However, the death of someone who was just a commoner, a peasant, someone who was just a, a laborer, that was forgivable that we could overlook. Uh, Israel says, no, the rationale behind this is not the function of society. It's not that we're worried about removing uh, an important person from our society that we just can't function without. Uh, Instead, it's like the, the reason you shouldn't hurt one another is because you are the image of God. In Israeli law, to kill another person is to rob someone of their identity before the Lord. They, they have some function to do that we can't even perceive just due to who they are in life. In other words, no matter what your job is, no matter what your academic uh, ranking is, no matter how athletic you are, none of that matters. What matters is that God loves you and that God cares for you. So, um, what most people take this commandment is saying there's at least three categories of killing that are not condemned, um, such as one, killing as a representative of the government. The government had the right to kill. We see this throughout the law that Moses gives us, not just the Ten Commandments, but his entire Mosaic law. If you know someone who is this, it's permissible to take them before the city elders at the gate of your city, bring a witness against them, and then if so, and they're found guilty, then it can be a legal stature to take someone out to the gate and stone them to death, right? So it could be a legal functioning of the law. Uh, Secondly, killing is capital punishment. If someone has done something that justifies their life coming to an end, and most notably, it would be that they've killed someone else, as we just saw in Genesis 9-6, but also Deuteronomy 13. Um, You can be killed. And lastly, it might be an unintentional killing, right? There could be an unintended, you're, you're out uh, doing farm work, your head of your axe flies off the handle, and it hits your neighbor in the head and kills him. Well, then this is not what this is referring to. That killing, that person is able to run to one of the cities of refuge, which we had preached on some uh, months before, three cities on the west side of the Jordan, three cities on the east side of the Jordan, and you could escape there, and they were run these cities of refuge by the Levites, the priestly class of men. And as long as the high priest was in command and had his authority, when you did your act of murder, 
you are safe from the blood revenge of that person's relatives. So if I accidentally, from up here, hit Greg Hansen in the forehead with my Bible and killed him, now Maria and Pete and Lizzie would be chasing me down to get revenge, right? But if I could make it to Solon on time and ahead of them, then bam, you know, I'm, I'm safe and I could just start my new life there. Those are the situations in which the Israelites uh, realized that this commandment was not directed. When Moses says, do not kill, he obviously had something different in mind. Um, but that's not the end of the story, right? When we're looking at this in Scripture, we realize that there's more to this. We have to you know, keep in mind that uh, the New Testament always takes what the Old Testament says and adds something to it. So the, the best place to go, in my opinion, on that is Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And let's take a look at that. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start reading at verse 21. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you that you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is standing before people who have come to hear him preach and he is going to start telling them a little bit about his attitude towards murder, what it really meant. It's interesting, in this section we call it the antithesis. There are six statements in which the same structure literarily is followed. Uh, these antithetical statements are saying, this is what you've heard, but this is what I'm going to tell you. So they are opposites, right? And we see that in this structure back in verse 21. You have heard it said, right, to those of old. In other words, you're, you're mostly Jews. You were raised in the synagogue system. You understand what this commandment, you shall not murder, means. So it says, you shall not murder. And then he says, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's repeating this commandment. You've heard it said. Jesus' declaration is the antithesis of what has gone on before. This has been mistakenly interpreted to mean that Jesus makes his teaching the antithesis of the Old Testament law, but if we look closely, that is not the case. We'll see that Jesus is really contrasting the interpretation of that Old Testament law uh, with faulty interpretations and or applications. So what's going on is that there were certain groups of religious people, institutions, that were taking the Ten Commandments and they were turning them kind of around at a different angle, differently than what God intended when he first gave those commandments to Moses. And you shall not murder is definitely one of those. He's saying, don't, don't, don't listen to that. 
And what happened is in its time period between the close of Malachi and the beginning of Jesus' ministry life, there had been whole sections, whole books, basically, written on how to interpret these laws. Most of them completely missed the point of the law and in fact add a whole bunch of corollary instructions to them which make it almost impossible to follow unless you put yourself in submission to the people who are running these religious institutions. So as Jesus goes through that, if you notice in like verse 27 when he talks on lust, he says, you have heard it said, and so forth. Verse 31, when he talks on divorce, it was also said, you know, and then you jump back up to uh, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said. All of these are examples of his antithesis, this, an this section where he's talking about this is the Old Testament law, this is what Moses was given, this is what was intended, and somewhere between when he gave it and today, these religious leaders have taken this and they've moved the interpretation of it and the application of it into some area that God never intended. Jesus took it upon himself to say, this is the way this should be understood. This, in fact, elevates Jesus just by doing this and this approach to being on the same level of authority as Scripture itself. It's one thing for a rabbi, um, even the most revered of rabbis, to write his opinion, to say, this is what this law means. Uh, it's another thing when God himself says, this is how you should understand that. So by Jesus doing this, he would have given offense because he's changing a well-known rabbinical school interpretation of this law, but also because it wasn't too long till they began to realize, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, by the way you're saying this, this structure that you're speaking, uh, this homiletical method, you're basically saying that you and you alone understand this is how this law should have been understood from the beginning. And Jesus makes no apology. He says, exactly. So, if we really want to understand the sixth commandment from back in Deuteronomy or Exodus 20, we need to understand how Jesus saw it. How did he understand what it means not to murder? Jesus here looks at several examples of how to do this and demonstrates correct interpretation and application of this law. He says, basically, let's just get rid of everything that you've been taught since you were a child. It was incomplete. It didn't have the right focus. Now I'm going to set you straight. Pay attention. This is what I'm going to say. He says, hear what the Old Testament says. He says, you have heard it said. So because he's not saying, oh, this is what the law said, he's just saying, this is what you've heard say. He has the authority to change it. He's going to give us what the proper intent and motive was in the giving of this commandment. Uh, a pattern emerges as we re read through this. First of all, in these antithetical statements, Jesus introduces an Old Testament passage with a distinct expression. Um, you have heard it said long ago. Immediately, the people knew what he was talking about. Well, of course, this is the law. We understood that, right? The passive verb uh, was said is an example of what we call the divine passive. This was passed along. God is the one who spoke this command in the Old Testament. Uh, he gave it to the author, and then he gave it to the people. Secondly, Jesus cites the passage, or alludes to the current popular interpretation, uh, possibly the Septuagint understanding of this. 
but definitely the traditional practice. So for our purposes, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, right? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's giving us a restatement of that commandment. The current commandment is causing the people to apply the law in a faulty way. And then he gives the contrastive conjunctive, but, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother, and he gives us a new way of understanding it. So don't miss that as you go through here. He gives the intended meaning. This is what God intended for us to understand when he gave this commandment originally. He does not reduce it, but brings it to fulfillment. This does not always mean something completely unexpected or unknown, but it does give us a fuller appreciation and understanding. Somewhere in the interpretations of the Old Testament and the Judaistic teaching, this was included in there, but then it got lost, and Jesus is resurrecting it. He's telling us this is what we should be thinking. He says, but I tell you, it introduces three ways that a person's life can be taken through the act of murder uh, in ways that the Jews had not fully understood at that time. All they kind of were thinking, well, all I have to do, and maybe you think this too, I, I used to, all I have to do is not kill somebody, and I'm free of this commandment. I'd spend a lot of time focusing on the first four commandments, which deal with the personhood of God. I'd think a lot about honoring my mother and father, but you shall not murder uh, as, as a young Christian, I thought, well, I, I'm not going to murder. I'm probably not going to steal. I, I'm not married, so I can't commit adultery. Uh, I just go kind of through this list. And Jesus is going to really put a different fulfillment on that. He's going to say, uh, Dave, you have to understand this in the way that God intended it, in which the original Jews probably got it. All right, so what does he say? And notice this as he gives examples that each one of them has their unique punishment that's associated with them. Uh, he gets at the source of murder in this passage, which is what? Anger. Anger, bitterness. Uh, it is the cause of murder. Anger alone is a violation of the law, according to Christ. It was the original intent of the murder prohibition in the Old Testament. When we're inappropriately angry with people, we attempt to take their identity and value as God's creature away from them. The ultimate form of which is the physical act of murder. So in other words, there's a continuum in a sense, a spectrum, if you will. Uh, there is physical murder at one end where I've actually stabbed someone, punched someone, shot someone. Of course, they couldn't do that back then, but just take away their life. But that pathway to that and still inclusive of the injunction not to murder people is anger. It begins and probably ends with anger. Anger is brought into the center focus of this commandment. You take away their value from people when you're angry with them. You take away what God created them to be. The righteousness expected of a God's creation is not only in avoiding murder, but it's eliminating anger from our relationships. The disciple who's angry with his brother is subject to what? To judgment, which may refer to the ruling of local religious authorities, like I could be legally brought in front of someone because I had expressed anger, uh, like the Sanhedrin, but certainly it was going to put you in danger of God's judgment. 
So don't be angry. Everyone who is angry with his brother. Not a lot of explanation there. Not a lot of loopholes if you're looking for them. Well, he can't possibly mean angry like I'm just furious with that guy in the next lane of traffic or I'm just mad at my brother or my sister. Uh, my parents drive me, you know. It's not giving us like, well, we, God understands. It's okay. You know, we often hear, well, God is angry. There is a righteous anger in Scripture, no doubt. Uh, it's a dangerous thing, though, to take your own anger and just label it as, well, this is righteous anger. It says, if you're angry at your brother, you'll be, you know, eligible for judgment? Wow, that's a powerful statement. I, I have to say that in the preparation for the sermon this week, I got to this section and it, it just makes me quiver inside because for most of my life, I have spent a lot of time in anger, just furious at certain people, certain situations. Um, you know, I don't know if you were like me during COVID, you know, what do you have to do a lot of your day? You just sat there and sometimes I'd watch the news and watching the news it would just make me angry at the stuff going on. I get angry when people say this for God, when I know that's not what God's words say. I think of it at that as being righteous anger. But God has convicted me this week as saying, you know what? You're robbing people of their identity as God's creation when you're angry with them. Now, I don't express my anger. I've gotten very good at that as an adult. I, I can sit there with a smile on my face while seething inside, right? I'm thinking of words in my head that I would like to load that person down with, but I'll never say them. Does that mean any less anger is what I'm guilty of? No. If you're angry with your brother, you'll be subject to judgment. Wow. Obviously, an overhaul is needed with my attitude. Um, Iona and I spent a lot of time talking about that this week as we sat around. And she says, you know, Dave, I've just noticed this building anger. And there have been phases of my life, she says, where I just seem to get angry. And, and I'd like to say it's left over from when I was not a believer and I'm a remember, you know. But it's a pattern. It's a pattern of, of sin. And it has to be dealt with. Jesus says, so that's one way that we murder is by anger. Secondly, the person who calls another raka which is an Aramaic term, which means empty-headed one, all right? The term of contempt, of contempt was a personal public affront. This was done in front of others. It was done in a way to design to bring them down in the estimation of others. You would call someone this name because you wanted everyone else to understand that they should join you in your opinion of this person. Name-calling, it was highly insulting in Jewish culture. It was highly insulting in Jewish culture because a person's identity was stripped away and an offensive identity substituted. The significance attached to one's real name is removed from that person. And names are so important in Scripture. Uh, we've talked about this before. Jesus gives so many of his apostles a new identity by giving them a new name, right? Uh, Levi the tax collector becomes Matthew, the Simon the fisherman, you know, becomes Peter, and so forth. Uh, names are very important to God. So when we call a brother or sister in Christ a raka, and we do this publicly especially, we're taking away that identity that Christ gave them. Now, it's not saying they don't deserve it. 
I'm not saying I don't deserve it, but that's not how God sees us. And in Jewish culture, this was considered to be a tremendous offense. There's not a lot of feedback uh, from the people when he's going through this. Uh, they're probably feeling a little nervous because they are probably guilty of this, just like I have been. Um, but it's something that they understood, that names are important. Names are given from God. Thirdly, he says that you should not call one another, you fool. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Likewise, this was highly offensive in Jewish culture because moral connotations were attached to the term of fool. Uh, the word here, amore, is very close to the Greek word moros, which we get the English word moron. You know, where have you called someone a moron? When have you called someone a moron? It's one of my favorite terms when I'm driving. My wife uh, really was laughing at me. I was like, you gotta be calling people names too. You just don't say it out loud, but I'm very vocal. So she says, how many times a day, Dave, do you call people morons? You idiot, you morons, you know, move over there. How can you be going 35 in a 55 zone? What is wrong with, you know? All this stuff I can get really bent out of shape and that's kind of funny. But there are times when I'm very serious and that's what Jesus is really addressing here. When we call one another a name, designed to insult them, indicating a person who consistently acts like an idiot. That's what we're saying when we say, you fool. Proverbs makes the contrast between a fool, doesn't it? In so many of its verses, you fool or you wise man. Which one are you? You know, are you acting foolishly or are you acting with wisdom? That's up to God to make that decision. We don't need to pronounce that upon people, even if it's true. We're doing this in anger. You have to put this all in the context. If in anger, you're calling someone Raka. If in anger, you're calling someone you fool. This is not good. And each of these has a judgment. This one is the expression of the fire of hell. I don't know about you, but when I read this, it seems to be that Jesus is saying, this is serious. You're in danger of judgment. You're in danger of hell fire. This idea of fire of hell is the Greek word Gaena, right? Which is the transliteration of an Aramaic form of Geben Hinnon, or the valley of the son of Hinnon. This is the valley west and southwest of Jerusalem, where Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their children to the pagan god Molech. They had him consumed in fire. When Josiah the king, one of the last kings, uh, repents of the sin for them as a nation, one of the first places that he goes is to this valley of Hanan and destroys the pagan idols there. He wants to get rid of that burning of children. Later on, as time goes on, it becomes the trash heap of Jerusalem. People brought their garbage out there to have it burned. So as Jesus is preaching, almost everyone there has been to the temple for uh, their pilgrimage for their rituals and so forth and they could smell and see the plumes of smoke arising from this valley and Jesus says if you practice this kind of murder this anger this name calling then you are liable to be cast into such a place later on it will become a term that indicates the actually burning fires of hell 
if we look in Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. So it's not a good place to go. Jesus illustrates this statement of the seriousness of anger and identity theft by then focusing, he turns it a little bit here now in the second part of this session, uh, into something that is the reconciliation. Uh, how do we get over this anger? What should we do? And he switches it to a, a focus on community, on how we should deal with one another. He says, very interestingly, if you're at the altar with your gift, so I've come to Jerusalem, and I've brought my lamb, I've brought my turtle doves, I brought whatever I need to do to get atonement for my sin, he says, and there you remember that someone has something against you, then go and leave your, your offering there and pursue that person and make sure that things are right with them before you do this. In other words, your offering is really not of any value at this point. You have to get this right before God before God will accept what you've brought to him. This is how important this concept of you shall not murder is to the Lord. You've murdered that person with your anger, with your words, with your attitude, and you have to be repentant of that. And the way you show repentance is by pursuing reconciliation. Oh, if he could have made it anything else, I have to pay X percentage more of my money, I have to promise not to do it again. Any of those things would have been far easier than the fact that I have to leave my offering and go and find that person and pursue them and then make it right with them. Um, we had a good friend back in Nebraska uh, and her husband, and we were in the same homeschool association. In fact, we had created it with them for our community, and it had grown greatly. And I had a privilege. I had the privilege of having a certified teacher as a wife uh, at that time, homeschooling was kind of illegal, and if it wasn't strictly illegal in our community, it was frowned upon, even by my church elders, because it was so new. People hadn't been doing homeschooling for very long, but we just felt because of Rachel's special academic needs, this would be a great idea. And as several couples were sitting around talking about it, without much thought, again, I opened my big mouth, and I said something like, well, we don't really need the association. I've got my own teacher in the house, and I'm pretty good at different academic subjects, and we can teach, and you know, what we really need is the socialization. We need your kids there, but I really, and I think I said something like this, and you're going to cringe, but I, I think about it. I said something like, we don't really need your input. I don't need what you're teaching. Uh, I, I, I think I was thinking, I'm dealing with a bunch of farmers and ranchers, and it sounded like that horrible thing to say. But it was one of those things you say in a second, you, you're not really thinking about how it's coming across. And later, and I mean months later, I was in the Word, and it was just like the Holy Spirit was saying, what did you say there? What did you say to the, that woman and her husband? You hurt their feelings deeply. You need to go make this right. And again, being the thick-headed guy I am, I just kind of like, really? Wow. And then I turned on TV or something, and I ignored it, right? Uh, a couple months later, I'm in the Word again, and I feel God saying, you haven't dealt with this yet. You haven't gone and made right with this couple. So I, I thought it was really strange. I'm thinking, is this really the voice of God, or is this just me <clears throat> just kind of thinking over things too much? <clears throat> excuse me and so we called them 
we met in our church building and I did, we talked about a lot of things that evening. Things that had come up between us as couples that had kind of hurt our friendship and we were getting things straightened out and things were going great and we were just about done and they hadn't said anything. Hadn't brought it up. And I just said, I got to ask you one question. Did I hurt your feelings? And I just kind of rehearsed what God had laid on my heart. And both of them dropped their heads to their chests and they just started weeping. And they said, yes, that was the most hurtful thing. They both said this, the most hurtful thing anyone has ever said to us from someone that we respect. You're supposed to be our pastor. Oh, I had to ask their forgiveness. I, I, there's no sense in trying to say, I, I didn't mean it. I didn't have any idea what I was saying. I knew what I was saying. I knew what I was meaning, and they knew it. Another case, same thing. Uh, this time, I really didn't mean it, but it came across in the wrong way. And one of my elders said to me, you need to go talk to this elder, because I think you really hurt his feelings, what you said. So I went and asked him, did I hurt your feelings? And unlike the first example, this time the guy looked at me and goes, no, we're fine. I didn't feel that. I don't, I'm sorry that someone laid that on you. So I confidently went back to the other elder and said, no, didn't hurt his feelings. He's fine. And that elder says, do you think he's telling you the truth? Do you think he's being honest with you? That he feels free enough to tell you exactly how he felt? He says, I know for a fact it did hurt his feelings. So I had to go back for a second time. <laughs> it was really a great day. And just say to him, you know, dude, I am so sorry. I know that you said it didn't hurt you, but I think it did. And even if you don't want to tell me that, I just want you to know that I, I am sorry. So many times we need to say that to one another. Even as I was preparing for this week, God laid a person on my heart that I have to go back and talk to and make sure things are right. Jesus says, go back and make yourself reconciled with that person before you try to offer your gift. He also tells us that we need to come to terms quickly with them in this passage. And I think what's in sight here, and this is even scarier, is this has got to be some kind of Gentile court system he's talking about here. Because you're going to court with an accuser, and there was nothing in Jewish culture that allowed for this. So this is probably in court for the Gentiles. And he says, if you can, Come to peace with this man as quickly as you can. Don't let it get to court. Don't be quick to say, I have my rights. This isn't correct. He says, settle it if you can. Lest the accuser hand you over to a judge, and then the judge gives you to the guard, and you be put in prison. It was probably a monetary thing. He was in debt. And then in the Gentile world, you could be put in debt or in prison for your debt. In the Jewish world, there was no such thing. So he's even telling them, come to terms with people who aren't believers as much as you can. Deal with this. And he says, truly I say to you, this is how he ends this passage, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's the consequence of being in conflict. So not only are we to reconcile, but I think what Jesus is trying to say here by his emphatic illustrations, one, two, and three, is he's saying don't only just say, I'm sorry, but do what the law is intending here. Create a relationship with your adversary. 
Come to a place where you can appreciate that person and see the hand of God in their lives. I have never, ever, I will never be cease to amazed at the way that I learn about people when I'm with them in a group. And I get to hear their story and understand this is why you are the way that you are. And I'm sure and I hope they do the same for me. Jesus is saying, your anger, your bitterness, this is murder. You're calling a brother Raka empty-headed, it's murder. You calling someone a fool is murder. You have to deal with this. Be reconciled. Don't even try to act like a proper Christian when you have these things in your conscience. So the only choice that we have is to listen to what God is saying to us because there are times when we totally miss it in our communication with others. And when God shows it to us, we have to be ready and willing to go back. So I, I just will end by saying this. There's three things that this requires. Obedience, faith, and a listening to the Spirit. You have to have the obedience that when God shows it to you, that you are willing to take action on this. It's possible to keep hearing God's voice. Do this, do this, do this. You need to make this right. And you don't respond. And after a while, God will not be the one pursuing you, right? He's going to let you work out the natural consequences of your anger, of your murder, which would be severed relationships, uh, turning your face from one another, division in the body, division in the family. That is not what we're supposed to be. Now, we're not responsible for how that person responds to us, but we have to make that effort. That's where faith comes in. We do it anyway. Even if you said, I've tried this six, seven, eight times, we still have to do it. It's required of us, so we do it in faith. And we do it by listening to the Spirit. God will use other people to bring these issues to mind, but then we have to listen to His Spirit. As we think of the words that we have to say, Iona and I, going along with some forgiveness training that we do, always make it a point to say, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Not just, I'm sorry. That's one thing. People can or don't have to react with you. They don't have to interact with what you're saying. But when you say, will you forgive me? They have to say yes or no. And then you, you, you thank them. Uh, I wish I had time again, I say this almost every week, to go through our forgiveness seminar with you guys, but it is powerful. Forgiveness in, he in creating healing within a church body, within the, the covenant people of God, but also in the community that we live amongst non-Christians.